when I started drinking and using, very quickly I realized that if I was high or if I was drunk, I felt like people liked me more. And I felt like I was giving them something that I couldn't um, if I was just sober. If I showed up to the party with the booze or with the weed or if I was able to facilitate that, um, I knew people were going to be happy with me. A lot of my energy in high school was spent trying to make sure that I was that guy. Hey guys, welcome back into this episode of How's That Working For You, a podcast where we try to look at life and recovery through the lens of the Enneagram, and we're always looking for some help, hope, and a little bit of humor along the way. And today in studio, we've got special guest, Mr. John Bales. Good morning, John. Good morning, Art. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back in. Uh, I know uh, Monday mornings are can be busy for anybody, but... Uh, Busy for you because you've got a, what, an almost three-year-old? Yes, he'll be three in November, and this morning was particularly challenging. Uh, <laughs> he just, I think he decided he wanted to quit school already. Um, he just <laughs> didn't want to go, didn't want to get dressed, so it took us uh, probably an extra 20 minutes to get out the door, but, um, yeah. but everything's okay. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, getting through that and getting up here. And John is the program director for the Recovery Resource Center here in Birmingham, which is part of the Crisis Center. And uh, we'll we'll go into some detail in that in a minute, John. But uh, you weren't uh, always on that end of recovery. Uh, we, you've got a long story of addiction. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um Definitely. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I think uh, I was in active addiction for almost 20 years. Um, so the Crisis Center, their whole mission really is to just support people in what they call their greatest time of need when they're in crisis and empowering them with resources. And that was definitely me. Um, I had some organizations out there like the Crisis Center that helped me. Uh, so I'm grateful today to be a part of that and be on, like you said, the other end of it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back later and you can uh, explain um, the workings in Recovery Resource Center and all the different services you guys offer and maybe even tell us a little bit about what you're seeing. Sure. Um, in the meantime, also, I know that you identify with Enneagram style too. Is that right? That is correct. I am a two. Uh my executive director, she's also a two, and a lot of times we end our emails with twos unite. Uh, <laughs> so it's nice to have someone else who I feel thinks a lot like me, and I'm able to I'm able to be myself with her, and she gets it, she relates to it, and she's a lot more versed in it than I am, so she's able to help me uh, kind of kind of deal with being a two from time to time. Yeah. Do you know uh, when you first found that out, or, or do you remember why you even took a test or an assessment or talked about it? So I was thinking about this over the weekend, and it was either for, it was either when I was working for a nonprofit up in New York, and similar to the Crisis Center, uh, their mission was ending homelessness in New York City, quite uh quite a lofty goal. But, um, 
And I can't remember if it was there or if it was a little later. My wife, she's in HR. She does a lot of HR work. And I feel like she also got me to take the test. But, yeah, I don't remember, but it's been a few years. Um, yeah. And when I started working at the crisis center, like I mentioned, Meg, she uh, she's really in tune with it and kind of relies on it a lot. And so the last three years or so, yeah, I think a lot about being a two. Yeah. So can you, as you think back over your life, whether it was even as part of the addiction story or even maybe on the higher side when you've actually been your more true self, can you see some of the aspects of two-ness now that either got in the way or are helpful? Yes, without a doubt. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I always say when I'm telling my story, when I started, when I started drinking and using, very quickly I realized that if I was high or if I was drunk, I felt like people liked me more. And I felt like I was giving them something that I couldn't um, if I was just sober. Yeah. Um, it just seemed like it seemed like I was able to if I showed up to the party um, with the booze or with the weed or if I was able to facilitate that, um, I knew people were going to be happy with me. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of my energy in high school was spent trying to make sure that I was that guy. Um, it was interesting because you just mentioned two words there. One was giving. The other was liked. Uh, so as most folks that identify with Enneagram type two would say that uh, they're just natural givers, it seems like. And until they kind of catch up with that, their, their own ego, a lot of that is to assure that they will be liked. Uh, the heart triad, twos, threes, and fours are primarily concerned with affection, connection, and esteem. It doesn't mean that all of us, whether we're head types or body types, are not concerned with that, but you guys particularly seem to have that kind of uh, as an essence as, as part of what you're in the background in the operating system you're constantly thinking about or concerned about. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want anyone I don't want anyone's source of discomfort to be directly related to me. So yeah. I want to, it feels like I'm going out of my way to make sure, and this really simplifies it, I think, but I want everyone to be happy, but not just happy, like everything's okay in their world and they're content, but I want them to be happy with me. With you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the other key. So often that uh, early and often is kind of an unconscious drive for those that, not that you knew as a child, of course, you would identify with style too. But there's this unconscious drive to figure out ways to see how I can help or I can give without knowing that that's attached often to this image thing of or being liked, accepted, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it was, I mean, I've, <clears throat> therapy is a big part of my story today. And even, even early on when I was kind of, I don't want to say dipping my toe into recovery because that almost makes it sound like it was my choice. <laughs> but when people were forcing my toe into yeah, recovery. Yeah, yeah. I've been um, there. Yeah. yeah. So even, even back then, 
I started to kind of understand the idea of codependency and I started to understand the idea of, wow, I'm placing a lot of value on what other people think of me. So it became, it, it became one of those things where I was aware of it and I felt like it could be almost negative, but at the same time, something inside of me said, this is ultimately good. Yeah. Um, like I just have to figure out a way to still be helpful to people and still want to give to people, but I have to do it in such a way that's healthy and not yeah. um, damaging yeah. to yeah. myself. More balanced and harmonized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Which is the work of reintegration, uh, no matter how we do it, therapy, 12-step work, recovery, Enneagram, whatever it is, it's the work of kind of putting those pieces of ourselves that got a little lopsided back together. Yeah. Yeah. Because there really is a superpower with twos. They're, they, they're lovely people that can give to an extreme death and help. And when they find their balance in, okay, it, I can do this without it having to be about me and being loved and liked in my image, then they really become even more powerful. I don't know if you've experienced that or not. Uh, that's the goal. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I would. I feel fine saying that's what I'm working toward. Balance yeah. is something. Just in recovery, it's one of those. One of those. Uh, I don't want to say buzzwords, but it's one of those things that people talk about a lot. And I think working to achieve it is commendable. Um, but I don't want to put too much pressure on having to achieve it yeah. because I think it's very difficult for a lot of people. Well, say old, uh, I guess Bill W. and Big Book said we don't have to be saints by Thursday or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Keep exactly. working. And it's yeah. the, I mean, it's that um, early on I took a lot of, uh, I was, I really leaned into that it's progress, not perfection. Yeah. And sometimes I think, in early recovery, uh, that can even be used as a as a crutch, almost like oh, it's an excuse to yeah. still kind of act out on some character defects, yeah. or still. Yeah, my f- my favorite shirt of all time with the slogan in recovery is "Warning, I have character defects, and I'm not afraid to use them." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, and and sometimes it's I'm not afraid to use them and I'm going to use them because I still get something from yep. them. Um, yeah. like there's a purpose, Yep. but so, uh, April 5th is my sobriety date, uh, April 5th, 2015. So I guess I'm in my seventh year working yeah. on Congratulations. Uh, eight and, um, where I'm at now is I sort of change it from it's progress, not perfection, to its progress toward perfection. Um, So I know perfection isn't something I'm ever going to attain, but now I at least I'm working. I would like to think uh, in such a way that it's always about growth and you're moving, moving toward that ideal. Yeah. Um, Well, let's go back. Uh, You've got a fascinating story um, as a lot of folks that come on the show do. Obviously when, when there's substance use disorder involved over a long period of time, it's going to make for some stories, but you, you really do have an interesting one. So go back because you're, you're not like just from around Birmingham. You've been all over the place. Tell us a little bit about your life. Yeah, sure. So I did, I grew up in Birmingham and 
you know, I always talk about uh, one of the first times uh, consequences came early for me when it came to my, my use and drinking. And I was 16 and I got arrested. Um, it was a Friday night. I was out with my friends and um, basically I remember I was pulled over by the cops and I had some beer in my car and um, they were handcuffing me on the side of the road. And I remember some of my friends driving by and for a moment there I was ashamed and I felt guilty and I was a little embarrassed and but fast forward a couple days and it's Monday and I go back to school and it was almost like I walked in and I had this sort of badge I was I was that guy who had been arrested and I was cool and people wanted to talk about it and people were talking about me and so all of a sudden I sort of had this identity uh, that I had never had before, and people were gravitating towards it. Um, and so that sort of, that's the way I describe um, I describe my early use. Uh, I would do things, crazy things, and people would laugh, and it would get people's attention, and that's what I liked. Yeah. Um, I graduated from UAB, and... Back then, Birmingham wasn't the same as it is today. Birmingham's come a long way. I just remember my whole goal was getting out of Birmingham. Uh, I wanted to get out of Birmingham. I wanted to move somewhere else. I wanted to be in a bigger city. And so after after UAB, I moved to New Orleans. And Were you struggling with substance use disorder at any level while you were going through school? Yes, I was. I um, I A couple more arrest, a DUI here, a public intoxication there, um, academic probation, things like that. Uh, my story is very common in that in high school, I was sort of National Honor Society, um, kind of a really good student. Uh, and then somewhere around 16, 17, um, I, had a, I, I had an AP chemistry teacher one year. I came to school when I was, I came to school first day, as a junior, and she said, John, I've never seen anyone that has regressed the way you have regressed what wow. has happened. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, what does that, what does that even mean? And that's, that's kind of rude. And, um, <laughs> but at the same time, I didn't really care what she thought um, because, yeah. At that so time, the regression I was, I was, I thought I was actually, to go back to what we were talking about, I thought I was progressing I thought I was progressing toward being popular wow. and toward people liking me. Yeah. And, but such, such a drive that it even overrode your, the natural intellect and your abilities from a scholastic standpoint, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it just became, it became, I remember actively thinking in college up oh, C's get degrees and I don't need to, I don't need to, really push myself. I just need to get by. And as long as I'm having a good time, happiness was my goal. And, um, so there was definitely, yeah, I mean, I was, I don't know, I think I was 18 or 19 the first time I ever was court ordered to go to an AA meeting. Um, so it was definitely evident. Um, I moved to new Orleans and I always joke with people and say, if you think you might have a drinking problem, Move to New Orleans, and you'll find out find pretty out. quickly. Yeah. Um, I'd started working at a little bookstore there. It was one of my first jobs I had. 
and it was a little independent bookstore. I'm an English lit major, so, uh, but the first day, the guy who owned the bookstore took me out to lunch. We went to this great little place uptown called Frankie and Johnny's, probably the best red beans and rice I've ever had. been there. Yeah. So good. But Tom ordered a beer at lunch, and I remember thinking, wow. This I'm in the is, right place. This is okay. <laughs> and so what I took that to mean was I could order, I could go to lunch every day and drink beer. Um, I could do that, and that was absolutely fine. So I was in New Orleans for almost four years, and then Hurricane Katrina happened. Uh, while I was in New Orleans, I got another DUI, and um, there was a lot of, a lot of, I guess, red flags uh, when I was there. I would, I would leave my friends a lot, and go and drink alone and um, a lot of times waking up and sort of not really remembering how I got home. And um, so that was happening, but I wasn't quite ready to acknowledge it was out of control at that point. Yeah, it's kind of Um, interesting because uh, in one sense, it was almost like the the image or the story and the connection, part, part of it originally kind of came through alcohol. But eventually, it began the thing that took you away from socialization. Yeah, exactly. And I, I started. That was really when I started to realize, wait, like, there's a point to where <laughs> I reach a point when I'm drinking or using that it's no longer acceptable with my friends. Um, and one of the times I remember, I had gotten the DUI down there and went to a meeting one night just to satisfy that whole probation, get the sheet signed, that, that thing. And I came home and my roommate had some friends over and, uh, offered me a beer. And I said, no, I said, I don't think I'm going to drink. I think I'm going to try and go a couple days without drinking. And Lionel said, good. And I remember thinking, Oh, okay. So other people think this is a good idea too. Um, and yeah, just I have to I have to tell this part of my story as well. So that meeting, um, I show up to the church, and I guess I was I was maybe twenty three years old, uh, twenty three or twenty four. I show up to the church and I walk in and I see a room. Some people are going into the room, and I just walk into this meeting and I sit down. I was a little late, I think, but as soon as I sat down, this woman was crying. She was sharing, and she was saying, I don't know why he keeps doing it. Uh, It's like he wants to hurt me. Um, And I guess it was written all over my face. This guy leans over, and he says, are you supposed to be in AA? (laughs) You were in (laughs) Al-Anon. Exactly. I said, yeah. He said, this is Al-Anon. You're in the wrong meeting. He said, AA is down the hall. And I didn't really know what Al-Anon was. Um, But you fast forward 10 years, and today I look at that moment, and it's like I was sitting there listening to my own mother. It was like she was talking about me. Wow. And it's really powerful for me to think about that now. But anyway. And I'm like you. I've got both stories as a person in long-term recovery and grateful for it, but I've also got many family members that we've struggled with and suffered with. And so I've been in both rooms. 
Yeah. Yeah, but that had to have been on my like you said, somewhere along the line that registered with you and it held did. on for a while, didn't it? Yeah, 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 it did, I guess. And and it was really when I started um really giving the program a chance and really sort of thinking about this idea that addiction really is a family disease. And when I started to understand that concept, that moment became very important to me and I think about it a lot today yeah I was gonna say I bet that informs what you do big time at recovery resource center yeah absolutely. which, which we can absolutely. come back to in detail in a little bit yeah yeah a lot of times when people call us um it's not the person uh the mm. person experiencing the crisis it's or I shouldn't say that it's not the person in active addiction it's a yeah. family member and they're also in crisis yep. um it's a it's a crisis moment for everyone involved and that's why it's important that they're talking to someone like myself, someone who's been there and someone that can sort of relate to even that side of it. Um, but yeah, after hurricane Katrina, um, my house had about five foot of water in it. I remember, um, we had left, we had evacuated. We were very lucky. There were so many people. Um, and again, it's only, it's only through time that I have this perspective. Uh, there were so many people who didn't have cars, so many people who didn't have resources, so many people that didn't have family in other states or friends in other states. And so it really upsets me sometimes when I hear people say, like, well, why why didn't they evacuate? Or why? Because everyone didn't have that luxury. I did. I evacuated with a group of friends. And um, we spent, I don't know, almost five weeks really just bouncing around from hotels because we all had Louisiana IDs and the Red Cross was uh, subsidizing our stay at hotels. And so we were staying in hotels and all of us, I mean, I don't want to say all of my friends were in active addiction at that point, but we were all um, clearly like dealing with what was going on. We were all self-medicating. We were all, none of us wanted to, kind of be sober for that experience, I guess. Um, so it was, uh, it was a crazy few weeks and I was in Memphis, uh, in a hotel. We had some friends in a band who had kind of, they were, they were playing a little week long stint at a bar up there. A lot of the bars in the South, like if you were a new Orleans band right after Katrina, it was, Hey, come play every night. We'll pay you. Um, and so I was on Craigslist and they had a Katrina help board and there was an ad that said displaced bookseller. And I looked at it and I said, well, wait, that's, that's me. Um, <laughs> that is specifically me. Yeah. So that's uh, pretty I specific. Read, yeah. I read the ad and it was very short. The woman just said, I own, I own some bookstores on long Island. I will give you a job and a place to stay for six months you need some help getting back on your feet, reach out to this number. And so I called the number immediately and had a very quick conversation. I remember the woman sort of asking me who my favorite authors were and kind of trying to fill me out to make sure. Who um, are your favorite authors, John? Well, <laughs> Walker Percy. Okay. Um, and at that time, Walker Percy was very important to me because I was living in New Orleans yep. and had really gotten introduced to a lot of his, uh, not just his fiction's wonderful. The movie goer is a great, great novel. 
Um, but a lot of his nonfiction, his essays, uh, the things, the stuff he writes about Catholicism and the stuff he writes about Walker Percy is, was really this Renaissance man. Yep. He writes a lot today. You would call it self-help. And he even wrote a book that was sort of satire called lost in the cosmos. The last great, I think the subtitle was the last great self-help book. Hmm. And so he, it's kind of tongue in cheek about some of the uh, some of the stuff that was going on then um, in this movement. But anyway, yeah, he 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 really became big in the uh, I guess in the what you would call the New York, the the more East Coast, you know. As far as authors and writers, there was that period where he did. You do any Flannery O'Connor? If you yeah, did Percy, loved, right? Uh, yeah, I loved Flannery O'Connor. Um, all the all the strange Southern writers. Yeah, <laughs> Flannery O'Connor and and Truman Capote. Yeah. I had a really big uh, affinity to Truman Capote because he had this story of in a lot like Walker Percy, kind of these Southern. Uh, born in the South, raised in the South, but then all of a sudden they found themselves as transplants in other yeah. parts of the country. And I think they both struggled with their sort of, okay, this is my like Southern heritage, mm-hmm. but I need to rebel against some of this, but yeah. I need to embrace some of it at the same yeah. time. And um, So you kind of found yourself in that. I mean, when you said the ad said displaced bookseller, I, I suspect that doesn't happen very often in the history of ads. Yeah, right? I um I don't know if there's ever been an ad that specific for <laughs> And it found you somehow. Yeah, exactly. And so I just I So now you're you're a displaced southerner and you're in Long yeah, Island, New York. Yeah, or? I had been to I had been to New York one time. I had a friend from high school who was in the Air Force and he was stationed up in Baltimore and um uh, a good friend of mine, we flew up to Baltimore, spent a couple weeks with, or I mean, a couple days with Eric. And one of those days we drove from uh, Baltimore up to New York, just, just so we could drive and say we had been in New York. We didn't even spend the night. We just walked around Central Park and um, I think ate, uh, ate some pizza, just did, yeah, it was just an experience. But I had really never been to the state of New York. I remember asking Charlene, that was the woman who owned the bookstore. Um, I said, so where is Long Island? I said, is Long Island close to New York City? And she just kind of laughed. And she said, well, yes. She said, but we're out on the east end of Long Island. Have you ever heard of the Hamptons? <laughs> and I just remember thinking, yes, I have heard of the Hamptons. Um, when can I come up? When can she said, well, when can you get up here? I said, I will start driving tomorrow. And, and I did, I drove home that afternoon from Memphis, walked in the door. At that point, my parents were a little worried. Um, they had offered for me to move back in with them, come back to Birmingham. And that just wasn't in the cards for me. I didn't want to do that. Uh, but I remember walking in the door, my mom making some remark, have you figured out what you're going to do or, well, and I just said, yeah, I'm moving to New York. And she just kind of dropped um, what she was doing and said, what? <laughs> and I sat down and I told them, like, this is this is what I want to do. Um, I'm ready. And I remember the next day packing my my car. I didn't have anything. Um, I think I think that evening my father took me to Macy's. I bought some clothes because when when I evacuated, we evacuated thinking it was going to be the same as any other hurricane. 
with about three days worth of clothes. I had a pair of flip flops, um, a couple pairs of shorts and a couple t-shirts. So, but I remember packing my car, driving, and I remember thinking, I don't know anyone in New York. Um, I don't know where I'm going, uh, but I'm going to be okay. The reason I thought I was going to be okay is because by that time I had procured <laughs> um, enough marijuana. I had a fifth of Jack Daniels under my front seat, and I had a pill bottle full of various, it was either opioids, benzos, it was, but I just remember I have this so I can go anywhere and I'll be okay. Wow. I remember thinking wow. that. And I also remember thinking I'll get there and I'll find more of this. Yeah. Like I'll. So by so, that point it had progressed, the disease had progressed pretty deeply. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't think at that point I, I didn't believe I was dependent on any of those substances. I didn't believe, um, I just remember thinking that as long as I had those, like I could, I could be okay anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it didn't take very long at all. I mean, it's it's almost like whenever I would travel, like my people would find me. And um, the first day at work, um, one of my coworkers at the bookstore made a comment and I was like, oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, like I smoke. And he was like, OK, good. He was like, and we're going to go to um, a club tonight. It's called the Star Room. Um and I remember thinking, this is it. This is the Hamptons. This is, like, why I came here. And sure enough, we went to this club that had velvet ropes. And there was a line of people to get in the door. And Justin knew the the bouncer at the door. We got to skip the line. We walked right up to the bartender. The bartender gave us a small little bag. Um, and we went into the bathroom and... It just started immediately, wow. and I was able to just land there. Um, I remember a lot, though. Uh, I fancied myself a poet. Um, I, I, I enjoyed writing, um, always have. Early on, early on I, I began to romanticize some of those writers we discussed, mm-hmm. um, people like James Baldwin, um, people like Faulkner. Uh, Hemingway, although I was never a huge Hemingway guy, but his story was what? That he was this man's man who was an amazing writer and who could drink whiskey like no one else had ever seen. Um, yeah. And so to me, writing went hand in hand with drinking. Um, and then, of course, in college, the Beats, right? Jack yeah. Kerouac. Yeah. Um, Ferlinghetti, William Burroughs, all of those guys. So writing... It's reminded me of the line, the lyric from uh, Steely Dan from Deacon Blues, you know, drink Scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel. Yeah. That whole romanticized yeah. creative yeah. that, that it has to somehow be fueled by substance. Yeah. 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 And, and living in New Orleans, I mean, that was a big part of it. Um, there was one of my favorite songs used to be by John Lee Hooker, one bourbon, one beer, one scotch. And this old blues tune, and I remember sitting at bars thinking I'm tonight I'm going to go and I'm going to have a beer and a bourbon and a scotch and I'm going to do it exactly like John like Lee a, Hooker said yeah. and uh but yeah so so you mentioned early right at the introduction you mentioned uh part of your story in New York City 
at some point later was working for a nonprofit to reduce homelessness. Now here we're, we're starting on day one in, in your new job as the displaced bookseller in the Hamptons and you're at the nightclub and you're in the bathroom using, right? So what happened between there and there? A lot, um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of stories. When I look back today, it's, it's almost, um, it's hard for me to, uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard for me to think about. Some of it's just so wild. Some of it is so embarrassing. Some of it makes me feel so ashamed because I had a group of people that saved my life. Um, I guess you could say, or they gave me this opportunity. Um, they, uh, entrusted me and I mean, I, yeah, so six months turned into two years in the Hamptons. While I was there, I began freelance writing for a small weekly newspaper called the Sag Harbor Express. Um, also while I was doing that, uh, and at some point I quit the bookstore and became a full-time reporter for the paper. Um, while I was doing that, I also got another DUI, um, and some other consequences. And I also started going to AA, um, as a result of yes, being court ordered, but also an episode um, I had a really bad night for the first time ever. It scared me, the thoughts I was having. And I remember, and this is another very pivotal part of my story. Um, I had this therapist or this counselor in an outpatient program that I was, I was enrolled in. And I'd go every week and, oh, I've got seven days clean. I've got 14 days, 20 days clean. And she was telling me to go to all of these AA meetings. And I, yeah, yeah, I went to it. It was great. And, um, one night, though, and I was lying, of course, the whole time. Um, one night, though, I, I scared myself. I had too much to drink. I took a few too many pills. And um, the next morning, I woke up and I kind of thought about what I had done. And I called up this counselor and said, hey, I need to come and see you. And she said, oh, but your session isn't until Thursday. And I said, I need to see you this morning. And I walked into her office and I got... 100% honest with her. And I said, look, I've been lying to you. And she said, John, I know. And I said, wait, what do you mean you know? She said, John, all of those meetings I've been telling you to go to, she said, I've been at a lot of them. <laughs> she said, I'm an alcoholic, John. Wow. And I remember that was the first time I kind of understood I can't bullshit a bullshitter. Yeah. Um, someone who knows me, someone who's been where I'm at, someone... And so I think about that a lot today, but, um, I managed to, I managed to stop drinking and I say stop drinking because, um, as soon as I got off probation, I started smoking, uh, weed again, but I stopped drinking. I went to meetings. I met a really solid group of people who helped me, um, and they were concerned with helping me. I had also, um, I'd also met a girl who had moved had moved from the Hamptons into the city, into Queens, and I remember making a decision to leave the Hamptons, move into the city, follow her, and give that a shot. And I also remember some people telling me, John, like, that's it's not really the best idea. You've got something really good here. Why do you want to do that? And um and I took everyone's advice to heart. 
hey, when you get to the city, there's this great meeting um, and, and you need to find another home group and you need to stay connected. And um, of course, I didn't do that when I when I moved into the city, I sort of figured, OK, I've made it a year without drinking like I'm I can continue to do this. And and I did for a little while. Um, long story short, girl and I that relationship kind of fell apart really due to a lot of my dishonesty around smoking weed. Um, and I convinced myself that the only way I was going to meet another girl was to be able to go to bars. And after a few months of successfully going to bars and not drinking, um, all of a sudden there was this night where uh, having a scotch seemed like a good idea again. And so... um I managed to hold it together for a little while, um, and I started working for a nonprofit, um, uh, and I was doing development work. I used my sort of skills as um, as a reporter or my editorial skills, I guess, and when I was in college, I studied business writing and technical writing, and so I was able to write grants or proposals, mm. and um, I, the work was very fulfilling to me. Um, and then I started doing some freelance writing for a paper in Lower Manhattan. Um, and then an opportunity to go full-time at that paper presented itself. And I became, at, at 30 years old or 31 years old, I was the editor of the Downtown Express, which was a uh, weekly newspaper in Lower Manhattan, basically a community newspaper. Um, and So you, in a way, you're kind of living the dream uh, yeah, Southern boy, relocated writer, uh, New York editor. And yeah. it, to again, I would I would realize this down the road reading Bill's story. That phrase, I had arrived. Yeah, and I remember, I remember when they offered me the job at the newspaper, sitting on a park bench um, in Soho. That's where I, that's where their offices were, and thinking I've made it. And now all of my friends back home are going to know. Um, and and then I got up and walked to a bar because that's what newspaper reporters and newspaper yeah. editors did. But, plus, let me ask you something that sounds a little bit like, in my story, I know often it was at the moments like I've made it where my celebration was to go either to the substance or the behavior that I'd always relied on even when I was down. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it. Um, there's there, there's a lot of times in my story where a high is immediately followed by a low, um, and the low is a result of of me deciding that the moment wasn't good enough. Um, mm. I needed to take it to another level. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so um, it's a uh, it's a short. Two years, I guess, is what I lasted at that newspaper before um, they had to let me go because I uh, had shown up a couple times smelling like alcohol. They had the discussion with me. Um, and I remember at that point uh, them saying, hey, look, like you can go to treatment. Your insurance like is going to be like it'll cover like basically <laughs> I, <laughs> And I just said, no, I don't need that, um, but thanks. And um, the next year or so was was pretty rough for me. 
um, up there because um, I exhausted all of my resources, unemployment, um, and found myself, uh, I was, for lack of a better phrase, evicted, politely asked to move out of this apartment that I'd been in for a while and um, just a lot of dishonesty with my parents back home. They were still trying to help me, but I was, uh, I was basically homeless, um, staying on friends' couches, um, until, uh, until again, um, another DUI, (laughs) um, and a very, uh, I guess unhealthy, um, but I had come to rely on opioids at that time too. Um, a, a very convenient connection led to daily use and um, led to me coming to the realization that I was physically dependent and led to me, um, I don't know, doing a lot of things that I thought I'd never do mm-hmm. in order to just get the substance. And um a, a counselor, again, another counselor, um, and this is why the work I do today I think is so important. There were these people in my story that were positioned that helped me um, and I think saved my life. And she just worded something one day uh, in such a way. Uh, a lot of times you get asked that question in therapy, are you a danger to yourself or others? Do you think you're going to harm yourself or others today and I was always saying no 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 um, until one day she said do you ever go to sleep at night and wish you wouldn't wake up and asked it in a different way and that just got me and I said well yeah I said I do that I've been doing that every night for the last year I do that every night and she was able to convince me in that moment to go and get some help Um, so my my story sort of begins, um, or I guess my recovery story sort of begins with me going to uh, Bellevue Hospital, the the famous um, Bellevue, yeah, the Hospital. famous Bellevue, which is referenced um, a few times in the Big Book, um, uh, and yeah, kind of spending a couple weeks there, putting myself in the position to where I could entertain going to treatment for my substance use, um, but yeah, today. At the Recovery Resource Center, we have we have peers, so a staff of people that are in um, in long term recovery. But then we also have clinicians. We have licensed professional mm-hmm. counselors and licensed social workers that are able to do with other people kind of what that woman did with me um, in terms of maybe they're completing their clinical assessment with someone. And the question is very sort of black and white, like, um, like, have you ever, or do you find yourself obsessing over substances? Oh, no, I don't do that. Well, okay, let me rephrase that. (laughs) Um, Have you ever uh, gotten upset with your boss and you've been at work and you sort of look at the clock and it's four o'clock and you think, man, I cannot wait until it gets to be five o'clock because I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to have a drink. And you think about it for that whole hour and then you go to the bar and you drink and you're drinking at your boss. You're, you're, you're putting mm, a yeah, certain, at somebody. Yeah, yeah. And they're able to yeah. just rephrase it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 
the um, the therapeutic side of what we do and just the therapeutic side of recovery um, is very important to me today because I think it I think it saved my life. Um, yeah. So like it was somebody that kind of knew from the other side what's going on and getting to know you well enough to finally ask the right question. So this idea of motivational interviewing is a big deal with peer support, right? Yeah. 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 And just not giving up, not, not giving up, like actually caring about the person and not just taking a yes or no answer. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So pick up the story there. You went to treatment. Yeah, so um, the story there, I decided, okay, it was finally time for me to leave New York. And I was just going to move home. Um, I had I had started um, kind of a long-distance relationship with an old friend from college. Um, and what I was doing is at the very end, I was leaving New York, flying down to Atlanta, spending a few days with her trying not trying to dry out from the opioids. Um, but it was okay with her as long as, or I thought as long as I was drinking, I just couldn't let her know that I was having to take four or five, six Percocets every day. Yeah. Um, so I was doing this dance, uh, where I would go down there and, and then go back to New York. And, but anyway, um, she um, she said, look, if you go to treatment, you can just move in with me in Atlanta when you're done and we can we can make this work. And I thought, OK, that's the answer. Um, so I went to Bradford for 28 days here in um, or up in Warrior and I had a plan the entire time I was there. They gave me a lot of really good suggestions, things I could do when I left. And I said, no, actually, like I had this experience with the rooms. Right. I had this mm-hmm. experience from the Hamptons. So I knew about the 12 steps and I knew that I could use the program, um, and work it the way I wanted to work it (laughs) in order to achieve a goal. And for me, the goal was, okay, I'm done with New York. Now I'm going to have the girlfriend get married, start a family, do all of the things that I thought everyone expected me to do at that time. Right. Um, so she was very patient with me um, up until she could no longer be. I always say that she was she was um, stronger than I gave her credit for because when <laughs> when everything sort of unfolded maybe six months after treatment and I had started drinking again and I had started um, using other substances again and she kind of, put two and two together and caught me. Um, she didn't really give me a chance to manipulate the situation. She just, I came home and my bags were packed. And, um, so that sent me back to Birmingham and, uh, I had a rough maybe eight or nine months, um, where my opioid addiction led to, uh, me again crossing a line I said I would never cross um, and led to me using IV. Um, and then uh, I was still on probation. At this point, my probation had been transferred from New York. And um, 
luckily, and I say luckily because I knew about treatment, I knew about recovery, um, but I was living in this one-bedroom apartment off of Highland Avenue um, doing nothing but waking up every morning figuring out how am I going to be able to drink and use to go to sleep the next night. Um, Like I just wanted to sleep. Um, I just did not want to, but I couldn't a lot of times. Um, I just didn't want to, I can no longer imagine living life with the drugs and alcohol and I couldn't imagine living life without it either. Um, So luckily I, uh, I screwed up with my probation, walked in, missed a week, walked in, and he said, you know, you were supposed to be here last week. And I said, oh, really? And he said, I think we should take a drug test. And um, then this guy, he even gave me another chance, Art. He said, okay, like, you need to come back in 10 days. And the only thing you need to pop for is THC. All of this other stuff has to be out of your system. And I said, sure, no problem. Um, went back. Was he going to allow the THC just because of the, the long the time the time yeah. in the body? Yeah. 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 Um, went back ten days later, still positive for opioids, cocaine, and THC. Wow. Um, I could not get myself to stop, even with the threat. Yeah. And um, so he sort of said, "Okay, look, this is this is what you're going to do. Um, if you can't do this, then we're going to put you on a plane." And we're going to get you back to New York, and you're going to deal with the consequences up in New York. And that was enough for me to sort of say, okay, I'll go back to Bradford. And something happened. Something was different. Um, On about the third or fourth day uh, I was there, something clicked, and I realized that I didn't have any – I didn't have any more plays yeah, you were out. Yeah, kind of the unmanageability finally hit. Yeah, I'm, I really don't have any control over yeah. it. Yeah, um, I don't have a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of my plans at that point, and and I don't like thinking about it this way because um, I believe in the idea that we can raise the bottom for people. Um, I don't think uh, the elevator has to go all the way down. Right. Like I think. But for me, it took what it took. Yeah. Um, and the only reason I sit here today, um, just returning from a trip to Jamaica and knowing that, you know, when I was 16 or 17, Jamaica was the only place I wanted to go. Uh, when I was 16 or 17, I'd show up to school with bloodshot eyes and my teachers would have a come to Jesus moment with me and um, tell me what I was doing. And I would, I would argue with them and say, one day you'll see marijuana is going to be legal. Marijuana is not that bad. Like, give me a break. It's not. And we're almost there. Yeah. Even in Alabama. And I was just down in Jamaica where I don't know how many people offered um, before I even got onto the bus at the airport. And I know that today I can't even smoke marijuana. Um the only reason I know that is because I've tried it. Yeah. Um, so I had to, I had to try everything, and I had to put myself in the position to where I didn't have any other choice except to try and take some suggestions and do what people told me to do. Um, so this time when I was at Bradford, I took all the suggestions when they when they told me the best thing for me was to leave and go somewhere else to a sober living. Um, I did that. 
And when I got to the sober living, I did everything they told me to do. And they asked me to start working for them. And that sort of led me to really rethinking my career, rethinking my purpose. And I started to believe that maybe my purpose was to help people avoid some of the pain I put myself through and I put my family through. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, not that this is not uncommon, but the idea that you would start listening to what they said and then not question it and do it is actually the beginnings of humility, right? Which in Enneagram language would be the virtue for the two. Not that everybody doesn't need it, but is the central virtue that brings the two back to balance. Yeah, and I was just, I was working with a sponsee last night and um, going over six and seven. We were reading Drop the Rock. Yeah, um, yeah. And Man, I'm hearing more and more lately again about that book that's been yeah. around for so long. Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, it was really influential for me because it, it to come full circle, it started talking about balance and it uses this sort of, um, uh, this, pendulum uh, metaphor for me I think I really always have been one of the extremes um, I've always been like man I'm on top of the world life is good I've made it um, or and, and everybody likes me <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing exactly what everyone wants me to do and, yeah. or it swings quick and furiously to the other side to I'm worthless. I failed everyone. I don't deserve happiness. I, um, and so step seven, the idea of humility, humbly ask God to remove all the character Um, shortcomings. I mean, when I came in a lot of people, I think because I've been around working, working in sober living for, um, almost two years and then going to work at Bradford after that. Um, and now working at the recovery resource center, I can't tell you how many people I've worked with in early recovery. Um, and like a lot of people come in and they have the steps have to break them down Yeah, because they come in and their ego is, so out of out of whack or so inflated or they think they are so and there was some of this in my story obviously but i was so low yeah kind of opposite had to, so yeah. a lot of people think of humility as it's not thinking you're better than everyone um like you got to stop thinking that way for me it's you got to stop thinking that you were worse than yeah. everyone yeah so i thought like i i didn't think i was better than anyone yeah. I thought I was the worst and everyone was better than me. And well, so say, say something more about that because I, I really like that way of thinking in that, yes, I understand that often the story is that you're coming in in an egoic way inflated, but there's often folks that are coming in kind of more on the spectrum you're talking about. That it wasn't that I was thinking too much of myself. It was like I thought nothing of myself, right? But how does the same system, how does the same process of steps treat both diseases, if you will? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. And I think thinking about the Enneagram and so for me, I think the steps helped me 
develop a true sort of sense of self. Um, uh, today I feel, and, and don't get me wrong, I struggle, uh, I struggle often um, still with some of this stuff, but I feel like I'm closer to understanding exactly who John is, um, the type of person he can be, and the type of person for me personally that I think my higher power wants me to be. Yeah. Um, the steps, I think they're just a pathway for people to come to terms with that. And sometimes it looks like building themselves up. Sometimes it looks like breaking, breaking yeah. them down. Um, and that's I think a great that, way to describe it. Yeah, Self-awareness. That, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the Enneagram is really cool in, yeah. in, in that sense because it gives someone sort of a lens to say, or a filter to say, okay, like if I'm this type of person, um, so yeah, I think. Yeah. Cause God doesn't create types. He creates this uh, beautiful essence in us that we've covered over, whether we knew it or not and layered over. And it's not so much you find your type, that's who you are. It's a clue, it's a passageway back to how we were really created, which I think the blend of the merge of the steps with Enneagram is so powerful. I've seen it over the last few years in my practice with people. And as we, you and I were kind of chatting before we started today, this idea, it seems to be percolating up out of the ground more and more. Yeah, it's on a pop level. I get it. Anything that works gets to be popular, right? Yeah. But I see it percolate not up just in the pop culture, but in the deeper work of transformation. And I'm seeing it more and more with recovering people, especially those that work the steps. Yeah. And I mean, I, uh, I appreciate what you said about being on pop level. Um, there was a time in my life where anytime something was on pop level, um, whether <laughs> well, as a deep, as a deep poetic English, uh, major, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was incredibly, and I used to like say, Oh, I'm not a judgmental person, but I mean, it happened the other day I was on Facebook and I saw someone that there's, there's a book out there that's, I guess, incredibly popular right now. Um, Something about the crawdad singing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the movie just came out. Yeah, and um, I don't know. It's um, really trying to, I don't want to sound like a book snob or anything, but I was almost trained working in independent bookstores that if something has um, a Today Show book club sticker on it um, or and this, I think, and my wife's reading it, so full disclosure, it had a Reese Witherspoon's book club or something. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, the people that say you can't judge a book by its cover, they never worked in a bookstore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the sticker that needs to be on it is Pulitzer Prize um, finalist or something. The sticker that needs to be on it is a Penn Faulkner Award sticker or um, National Book Award. And so I immediately start to think, Oh, if it's popular, if it's a mass market book, um, then it can't have any substance yeah. or, but uh, oh man, you got to do your, you got to do your step 10 now, man. Yeah. I call myself out on that thinking today. That's what I, that's what everyone just witnessed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, pop, pop is a lot like cliches, right? Yeah. And what I tell people all the time when I have to use a cliche and I feel bad for using a cliche is that they exist for a reason. That's right. There they was some truth for, embedded in there. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's hanging and, around. Because yeah, they're usually correct. Yeah. This is, the, yeah. this is the most apt way to describe That's something. That's good, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think um, 
the whole idea of the Enneagram, the whole idea of, I don't know, our, our society today, our culture today, um, it is refreshing for me to see a little more importance placed on self-care and people talking about mental health more and people talking about the idea of transformation, the idea that people can change. Uh, I know there's still a lot of work to be done around stigma and there's a lot of work to be done around believing that, I don't know, people, people can, um, people can change. Yeah. Um, but the Enneagram like is a great tool to inform that. Well, what I love about it is just the same thing I grew to love uh, about the steps when I quit trying to control them was that even the idea in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, that the idea of getting right with God, yourself, and others. So the same with Enneagram, there is a self-awareness that comes, but it's interesting how I've seen over the years more self-awareness usually brings more God-awareness more higher power, which then leads me to want to actually not just all this kind of go in, right, and find myself, but how then now do I actually relate to other people in empathy and compassion? The same thing working the eighth and the ninth step was, they said, the big book would say, it will bring this to you. If you'll go back, if you'll do it honest, not perfect, if you'll do it honest, you'll find yourself on the other side being more empathetic with the people that you went through life with before. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that makes me think. Um, uh, I have a therapist today. A guy again. It was a suggestion when I got out of treatment. Uh, I guess almost eight years ago or seven and a half years ago. Now I'm still seeing the same therapist, um, and he's always talked to me about spirituality. So I used to think spirituality was vertical. Right, it was something between me and whatever was up there mm-hmm. above me. So I looked at it as a vertical thing, but he's gotten me to, or he's taught me to sort of think of it more horizontally. And so it's really about the connection you and I have right now. Um, it's about, uh, and if I focus on the connection with other people um, and treat that spiritually. Um, then my connect my my vertical connection, if you want to think about yeah. it like that, yeah, grows as well, and yeah, um, the whole relationship thing, uh, yeah, the steps I had to first fix the relationship with myself, um, uh, and and the relationship with God and with other people, um, they're all three. One today, I feel like one can't exist yep. without the other. Yep. And yeah. the Enneagram, I, I'm, I'm guilty of knowing basically everything, and I don't want to say everything there. So I know a lot about twos because I'm a two. I don't know a lot about the other <laughs> types. Um, so that's something I want to work on. Yeah, because we, I did a, I did a, a couple of groups pre-pandemic, which uh, were the synergy of the Enneagram and the 12 steps, and not, they were about nine months long. There were two separate groups, and the beauty of it is we went through the steps together. We not only learned the depth of our own type, but we learned that every week we would learn the depth of another type, and it would be folded into the step work. So if people were in the group or the other types, they got they got to talk more. They got to explain themselves to us more. But the interesting thing was whatever our type is, 
is we're, we're, we're either married to another type. We're in relationship with another type. We work for another type. We got kids are another type. They're all around us. And so if, if we'll keep doing our consciousness work, we'll begin to understand them at a deeper level, just like we began to understand and repair our relationship with ourselves. And then that does take it, I think, to that horizontal thing is, oh, wait a minute. It, it actually really was about receiving and giving love in the first place, right? It becomes more primary to us. And we understand folks at a different level, which can bring compassion, right? Yeah. Um, it's the idea of there's a, uh, there's a great company. It's called the Bitter Southerner. Um, yeah, look it up. Um, they sell, they sell t-shirts and, uh, they have a, um, a magazine. Um, but the reason I know about it is because Meg, my executive director, um, I walked in her office one day and she has this giant flag, uh, this like canvas flag framed on her wall. And it just says in big block letters, practice radical empathy. Wow. And she told me it came from Bitter Southerner, and I said, I want one. Please give me one. Um, And I have been using that phrase so much recently at work um, and just in my life because it it challenges me um, because I like to think I'm empathetic. Um, Yeah, twos generally are pretty empathetic. Yeah, um, but if I'm really, really honest with myself, um, a lot of times I'm empathetic to things I understand um, and I'm empathetic to things that I want to be empathetic to. Um, So the radical part is what challenges me. Like I need to always be empathetic with all people or make an attempt to be. And I think the more I know about people, so like you said, the depth of the, like if I can start to understand the depth of other, other people's character, put the same time and energy into that work as I've put into my own self. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah. I'll, maybe and I think, I think we're uh, seem to be in an era or season. I've talked about this before on the podcast. I don't know if I'm just, it's just me, but I do think we're in an era and a season where the universe is dragging us out of our bubbles. And so that those, we, we are exposed to more people with different viewpoints that are different from us. And that's, that's a good thing. But if I don't approach it with some sense of, you know what? I don't even know what I don't know, and I need to be open. Be go back to spiritual kindergarten or whatever to be open to what God's bringing me in this moment with these folks. Then I can shut my mind can become small again and shut down yeah, yeah. Out, of, out of fear, right? Yeah, which goes back to humility. Yep, um, yep. it goes back to always remaining teachable and always thinking that. Wait, I still have some things to learn. Yeah, and um, and yeah. New York, I miss New York. I really do. And uh, I've always said, or since I lived up there, I mean, I was up there for almost nine years. It's hard for me to. It's a big part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I would always tell people, I think everyone needs to live in New York for one year of their life because they are forced, you're forced to acknowledge that there's other people out there that think differently than you speak different, look differently. Like we're not in a bubble. Um, we share this, this, this world with other people and yeah, it, you're forced. There's, there's a level of forced humility. Um, when you ride the train to work every day and when you have to walk and 
you exist in this in this city the way that people exist when you when you're in yeah. New York. Um, yeah, I, I experienced it side. on a, on a smaller level just going to Connecticut to train. Uh, Back before they had a lot of training down here, I actually went up there to, to train as a certified recovery coach, a pure special, however you want to call it. It's got three or four different names, yeah. right? And uh, I ended up going up there because they were the gold standard of training with the Connecticut Community of Addiction Recovery back then. And just being in that cohort, CCAR, just being in that cohort up there with 67 of us, right? And very few of us were from the bitter south we were, we were and it was just really interesting to learn and listen from people in recovery or allies that weren't from and that even to the extent of how much they talked about doing body work uh which was so forbidden down here for so long yeah. <laughs> and so it was just fa- it really opened my and i began to understand how when i'd come awakened had the vital spiritual awakening you know, 20 years ago in recovery, but it, it was easy to, as the years went by, to begin to, to forget what people feel like as outsiders. That was a big eye-opener for me. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're going to wrap up, but I want you to tell me, uh, give me some some details about uh, Recovery Resource Center. What are some of the things you guys do? What are you really good at? And uh, what do people need to know about what you guys do there? Because this is still relatively new. Really, this is just, what, five years old? or Yeah, so uh, we opened in 2018, and we look a lot different today. Um, when we opened in 2018, it was a staff of five people, um, and today uh, we're at 20, uh, and we have two offices. We have our main office uh, in Cooper Green here in Birmingham, and then we have a small little satellite office in Jasper in Walker County. Yeah, uh, We opened that up about a year ago. Um, really just because Walker County has struggled for a yeah. while and, um, very few resources, but one of the hardest hit counties in the country. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I always joke with people and say, Hey, like our name can't be any, like it can't be any simpler or more clear. We're all about resources. We're linkage and referral. So basically we have a staff of peers and, they provide support, um, but then we have clinicians that are able to complete the Alabama Department of Mental Health placement assessment um, here in Alabama. Everything starts with that unless you're blessed or lucky enough to have really good insurance or financial means, then then the um, system of care looks a little different. It's a little easier to navigate, but um, so... We just help people. We help connect people. Um, we're not treatment. Right. So we say that up front. But you get the but assessments done. We get the assessments you, you done. You start looking or trying to figure out what's best for them. How do we get them to it? Can we get them there? Yeah, yeah. Because we're not treatment, we're not worried about, um, we're not concerned with assessing for one particular program. Yeah. We really look at the individual, we assess them, and we say, okay, you need a residential sort of residential program there. And, and we'll take everything into account um, in their story. We'll say, hey, you've got an option in Montgomery and Andalusia, up in Gunnersville and Huntsville and two here in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is there's a wait list to get in yep. all of them. Yep. But we can send that assessment to all six of those different providers. Someone gets on six waiting lists and – 
just their their chances of getting in some getting in yeah. somewhere quicker increases but yeah and our peers are there to really just work with people in that period between when they reach out for help um, and when they actually get admitted. Do you guys have a follow-through? Like when they've reached out, you've assessed, and you said, hey, we're, we're, we're trying to find you a place, and there's going to be some days here. Yeah, we you call get, them every day. Yeah, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, we call them every day just to make sure that they're doing what they need to be doing and to make sure that any other barriers don't pop up. Um, a lot of places have very specific rules, um, and so we're familiar with all of them. Yeah. And we're going to help someone, we're going to help them navigate that. Oh, okay, look, when you did your assessment, you mentioned being on this medication. Yep. Some well, places if you go here, you have to have 30 days of that medication. Like, are you going to be able to get a refill? Do you need help finding a primary care physician? Um, transportation, yeah. other things, just just a little just details that people don't yeah. that, that become barriers, and and one barrier will stop somebody dead in their tracks from getting the help they were ready to get. Right? Yeah, 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 and that's in a nutshell. That's why we exist. I mean, um, when the overdose numbers started growing so rapidly um, in Jefferson County, but really all over the country back around 2015 and yep. 16, yep. we knew that treatment worked. And we knew there was some really good treatment in the state of Alabama, but accessing that treatment was really difficult for a large part of the population. And so we really just try and address that. A lot of our people are, their story, um, to bring it back to humility, um, I thought my story was pretty bad. Um, and I don't want to... We all think we're terminally unique. No? Yeah. Um, the challenges that I had, like, I don't want to downplay them. Um, I really believe that when we think about the bottom or we think about, I believe it's more of an internal thing than it is external. But I also understand my privilege. Yep. And I was very privileged in the sense that Externally, I had a lot of resources that the majority of people out there dealing with this right now do not have. I mean, yeah. we've got people that um, we have a clothes closet, um, a clothes closet that uh, we just keep stocked with toiletries and some clothes for someone who is going to a detox program or going to a residential program. And all they have are the clothes on their backs um, because they're. Well, just for whatever reason, maybe they're experiencing homelessness right now and um, we're able to sort of start them out on the right foot at least. Um, but, yeah, it's really just about barriers. I, I say all the time we're sort of quasi-case managers in that mm -hmm. we're going to work with you. If you have a goal, we're going to help you reach that goal and whatever pops up along the way, we're going to talk about it and connect you. Because um, there's a lot of people out in Birmingham APC. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of people in Birmingham doing really great work. Um, but y'all are in a specific space that's really really needed. It's where the rubber meets the road. I've sent people to y'all numerous times that I've been in touch with as a a lay counselor and a recovery coach, getting them through. You guys mentioned for just a moment. Um, you you we tapped on it earlier in terms of. Uh, most of the times or a lot of time it's not the person struggling with substance use disorder that makes the first attempt with you guys it may be a loved one a parent a spouse a concerned significant other if you will that makes the approach to y'all right 
Yeah. Um, and for the longest time, I would always, I would always tell people, parents, like, hey, look, I can't imagine what you're going through because I don't have a child. That's, that's different now. I do have a child <laughs> and, um, and I do spend a lot of time thinking about, um, his future. And, but whenever a parent calls us or whenever I'm talking to a parent, I'm hearing my mother on the other end oh, of the phone. At that, right? so, at that accidental Al-Anon yeah, meeting. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I'm able to sort of immediately tap into something. Um, and everyone on our staff, does the same where it's like okay like yes we're here for let's say it's their son um we can provide them some services but if you need some services we can also direct you and um yeah i mean it's it's without a doubt um a crisis moment for both the person using and all of the people that love them and want to see them do something different and get better and um yeah how would people get in touch with you guys what's the best way if, if people were listening to this what would be the one thing you'd say this is the way you get to us just phone number is 205-458-3377 that's our office in birmingham that's the easiest way the easiest way is just show up we're, we're a walk-in that's that's one thing uh, that's why we opened our doors is because appointments can be a barrier. <laughs> Phone numbers can be a mm, barrier. A yeah. lot of times people don't have communication. If you can get to Cooper Green, 1515 6th Avenue South, um, it's basically on UAB's campus uh, right across from Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get there Monday through Friday, we open up at 830 Um but yeah, I would say the phone number. The Crisis Center does have a great website. It's uh, Inc. No, I'm sorry. www.crisiscenterbham.org. And and yes, I have to also. Um, we've talked a lot about the RRC and recovery. Um, the Crisis Center is there for. A lot of other things as well. They started out primarily with suicide prevention and yeah. intervention, but also really expanded over the years. Yeah, sexual assault services and um, uh, rape response, and a lot of really needed program, vital programs. Uh, so, well, John, thanks for giving so much. Not just today, but <laughs> and I really like you. Okay, uh, well, just to let you know. Uh, I appreciate that, Art. The, <laughs> the problem is that, you know, I'm going to walk out the yeah, door yeah. and I'm going to ask myself, was Art being serious? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I have a shirt that says the sarcasm is strong with this one. <laughs> so it, that's for my recovery, right? So I can assure you there's no sarcasm. Love you. Thanks for what you do and thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Art. Love you too. Glad yeah. to be here. Yeah, thanks. Folks, join us next time for another episode of How's That Working For You? Thank you.